Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 22nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A California judge issued what is likely the first injunction in the nation against a meat processing plant over the coronavirus safety. The injunction applies to Foster Farms, the nation's 10th largest poultry producer that operates a plant in Livingston, California, about 100 miles east of San Jose. It employs over 2,500 workers there, making it the largest employer in Merced County. The first outbreak at the Livingston plant peaked in August 2020. In total, nearly 400 workers tested positive, and nine of them died. Merced County's public health director called the incident one of the largest occupational fatalities experienced during COVID-19 in the state of California. The county health department shut down the plant for six days, during which Foster Farms completed two rounds of deep cleaning of its facilities and COVID-19 testing of its workforce. In the aftermath of the first outbreak, United Farm Workers of America, the union that represents about 2,000 employees at the plant, alleged in a civil lawsuit that Foster Farms had not been following county public health orders and other directives related to limiting the spread of the Corona-19 virus. Soon after the suit was filed, the court issued a temporary restraining order at the plaintiff's request. A TRO typically lasts no more than 30 days. Thus, the court set a preliminary injunction hearing on January 29, 2021, and on that day decided to issue an injunction incorporating the TRO's 20 requirements imposed on foster farms. The ruling required the employer to take specific steps to protect workers from the spread of the virus. But Foster Farms plans to appeal the ruling, characterizing it as unnecessary court intervention as both the County Public Health Department and Cal OSHA already have oversight of the plant. Company officials also highlighted the fact that Foster Farms has administered nearly 100,000 COVID-19 tests to its workforce since the pandemic began, 40,000 of them at the Livingston plant. The California Attorney General, along with a coalition of attorneys general from 47 other states, the District of Columbia, and five U.S. territories, announced a $600 million settlement with one of the world's largest consulting firms, McKinsey & Company. McKinsey is an American worldwide management consulting firm founded in 1926 by University of Chicago professor James O. McKinsey. The company advises on strategic management to corporations, governments, and other organizations. McKinsey advised opioid makers of how to turbocharge sales of OxyContin, propose strategies to counter the emotional messages from mothers with teenagers that overdosed on OxyContin, and helped opioid makers circumvent regulation. The firm also advised Purdue Pharma to offer pharmacies rebates based on the number of overdoses and addictions they caused. 
This February, the firm agreed to pay nearly $600 million to settle investigations into its role in promoting sales of OxyContin. California will receive nearly $60 million from the settlement. When the states began to sue Purdue's directors for their implementation of McKinsey's marketing schemes, McKinsey partners began about, corresponding with each other about deleting documents and emails related to their work for Purdue. Thus, the settlement agreement requires McKinsey to prepare tens of thousands of its internal documents detailing its work for Purdue Pharma and other opioid companies for public disclosure online. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, an agency within the U.S. Department of Transportation, is tasked with issuing regulations on commercial motor vehicle safety. It also has authority to determine that state laws on commercial motor vehicle safety are preempted by federal law based on criteria Congress has specified. Back in 2011, the agency revised the Federal Hours of Service regulations, which impose certain limits on the driving time of commercial motor vehicle drivers. Drivers working more than eight hours are required under the federal rule to take at least one 30-minute break during the first eight hours of work. But the driver has flexibility as to when the break occurs. The California rest break rules are different. California's rules are contained in wage orders issued by the state's Industrial Welfare Commission. California's minimum required break rules generally require that employers allow commercial truck drivers to take more rest breaks at greater frequency and with less flexibility as to when breaks occur. Thus, in 2018, two transportation industry groups asked the federal agency to revisit a prior determination that federal law did not preempt California's minimum rest break rules. The federal regulated regulator declared California's break rules were then preempted to operators of property carrying motor vehicles subject to the federal hours of service regulations. Then, California's labor commissioner and three other sets of petitioners filed a timely petition for review of the preemption determination. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed the preemption of federal over-the-state law in the published opinion of International Brotherhood of Teamsters Local 2785 versus the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. The federal court concluded that the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration reasonably determined that California's minimum rule a minimum break rule imposed additional and more stringent requirements than the federal's own regulations, and that the federal simply determined that it's in its rule, in its view, federal regulations adequately and more appropriately balanced the competing interests between safety and economic burden. The New York Attorney General filed a lawsuit against Amazon over its failures to provide adequate health and safety measures for employees 
and for Amazon's retaliatory actions against multiple employees. An investigation into Amazon started back in March 2020, following numerous complaints about the lack of precautions taken to protect employees from COVID-19. The investigation was later broadened to examine whether Amazon unlawfully fired or disciplined employees who reported these safety concerns. The investigation undercovered evidence showing that Amazon's health and safety response violated state law with respect to cleaning and disinfection protocols, contact tracing, and generally permitting employees to take necessary precautions to protect themselves from the risks of a COVID-19 infection. For example, Amazon was notified of at least 250 employees at the Staten Island facility who had positive COVID-19 tests or diagnoses, with more than 90 of those individuals present in the facility within seven days of notification to Amazon. However, in all but seven of those instances, Amazon failed to close any portion of the facility after learning of the positive cases. Additionally, Amazon implemented an inadequate COVID-19 tracing program that failed to consistently identify workers who came into close contact with employees who tested positive for COVID-19. On occasions when a worker reported having a close contact with a co-worker with a positive COVID-19 test, Amazon dismissed the worker's concerns and did not investigate or follow up on the reports. The evidence also demonstrates that Amazon unlawfully fired and disciplined workers who reported their concerns about Amazon's compliance with these health and safety mandates. The suit seeks broad injunctive relief and damages. And now our crime report. In 2018, the Labor Commissioner's Office cited Fullerton Pacific Interiors nearly $2 million for wage theft violations and civil penalties. The workers who did taping and drywall installation at hotel, recreation centers, and casino projects in Los Angeles Orange and San Bernardino counties were paid a daily rate that did not properly compensate them for overtime hours and rest breaks, and 24 workers were paid less than minimum wage. Fullerton Pacific Interiors appealed the citations, and the hearing officer just affirmed each citation in after a 10-day administrative appeal. The investigation into Fullerton Pacific Interiors began back in 2016 following a referral to the Labor Commissioner's Bureau of Field Enforcement from the Contractors' Cooperation Committee. A wage audit identified 472 workers employed during the violation period who did not receive lawful rest periods, and 289 were not paid overtime, and 28 were paid less than the minimum wage. The Labor Commissioner's Office issued citations for minimum wage violations, liquidated damages, overtime violations, rest period violations, failure to comply with an itemized statement for pay, and provisions and waiting time penalties. When workers are paid less than minimum wage, they are entitled to liquidated damages that equal the amount of underpaid minimum wages plus interest.
waiting time penalties are imposed when the employer intentionally fails to pay all wages due to the employee at the time of separation. 50-year-old Bonificio Justilana Marinas, who lives in San Dimas, pleaded guilty to a criminal charge that he fraudulently obtained more than $500,000 in COVID-19 unemployment benefits in the names of foreign nationals he falsely claimed were local real estate agents. Marinas filed about 85 unemployment insurance claims with the California Employment Development Department, that falsely asserted that the claimants were self-employed real estate agents in Los Angeles County, whose jobs had been adversely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Marinas often listed his own real estate business, Vintage Vintage Realty and Finance, located in West Covina, as a purported workplace of the named claimants. In actuality, the named claimants resided in Saipan, or the Philippines, and they were not registered as real estate agents in Los Angeles County, they had no employment history in California, and were not eligible for the benefits Marinas claimed. Marinas listed his own residence as the mailing address for each of the named claimants. As a result, the debit cards used to distribute the unemployment benefits were mailed to Marinas, who then used them to withdraw the fraudulently obtained funds. In his plea agreement, Marinas admitted that his scheme caused losses to EDD and the United States Treasury of at least $516,000. A June 24 sentencing hearing has been scheduled at which time Marinas will face a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. And in regulatory news, the California Labor Commissioner has cited a Los Angeles McDonald's franchisee nearly $126,000 for workplace retaliation and labor law violations after the labor commissioner found that the employer illegally fired four workers for reporting unsafe COVID-19 working conditions. The four employees of the Margino Street McDonald's, operated by R&B Sanchez Incorporated, filed retaliation complaints with the labor commissioner's office last September. The workers had advised their employer, Cal OSHA and the Los Angeles County Health Department about unsafe work conditions that they were concerned exposed them to COVID-19 infections. They had also participated in strikes over safety conditions at the Rango Street McDonald's and subsequently received termination letters from their employer. This month, the Labor Commissioner's Office issued citations totaling more than $125,000 in wages and penalties against McDonald's franchisee, R.B. Sanchez, Incorporated. R.B. Sanchez must reinstate the four workers to their jobs, remove any negative references from their personnel files, and post information on the citations and violations in the workplace. The Labor Commissioner's Office enforces more than 45 labor laws that specifically prohibit discrimination and retaliation, including Equal Pay Act violations. The office also investigates workplace retaliation complaints, including instances of termination, suspension, 
transfer or uh, demotion, reduction in pay or hours, disciplinary actions or threats, or unfair immigration-related practices. Telehealth services and providers have been in high demand as the world copes with COVID-19 public health emergencies. Federal and state agencies have amended and often loosened regulations in an attempt to facilitate and expand access to telehealth. However, the honeymoon phase of relaxed oversight may be coming to an end as the world adjusts to a new normal. The Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General, along with state and federal law enforcement partners, participated in a nationwide healthcare fraud takedown back in September of 2020. The takedown focused on several schemes to include alleged telefraud or scams that leveraged aggressive marketing and so-called telehealth services to commit fraud. This fraudulent activity resulted in charges for 345 defendants in 51 judicial districts, including telemedicine executives, the owners of Duramedical medical equipment companies, genetic testing laboratories, pharmacies, and more than 100 medical practitioners. In the aftermath of this takedown on January 26, 2021, the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General announced a new telehealth-related audit targeting the implementation of telehealth waivers by home health agencies during the public health emergency. On the same day, the Office of the Inspector General announced a second telehealth-related audit to investigate a broad swath of telehealth services. The first phase aims to make an early assessment of whether services such as evaluation and management, opioid use disorder, end-stage renal disease, and psychotherapy meet Medicare requirements. The second phase will dive deeper into the broad range of Medicare Part B telehealth services and compliance issues, including distant and originating site locations, virtual check-in services, electronic visits, remote patient monitoring, use of telehealth technology, and annual wellness visits. And in medical news, a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association reported that the coronavirus variant first seen in Los Angeles last July now accounts for about 44% of new infections in Southern California and more than a third of new infections throughout the state. In addition, the new variant has spread across the United States and to six countries around the globe. According to the publishers of the article, it remains uncertain whether the genetic changes that characterize the fast-moving variant have improved its ability to transmit from person to person or to make people infected with it sicker. But they wrote that the virus's rapid propagation in California is a cause for some concern. The homegrown variant is distinct from other versions of the virus present in the U.S., as well as the new strain from the United Kingdom and the strain from South Africa. But unlike those new strains, This variant is defined by several mutations in the virus, spike protein, 
which is the docking mechanism the virus uses to latch on to human cells. One of the California variant's five mutations could alter the particularly critical part of the spike protein called the receptor binding domain. A study conducted last year by Howard University researchers found that the mutation helps the virus attach more firmly to human cells, therefore has a potential to enhance the virus's transmission. At both Cedars-Sinai and the UC San Francisco Medical Center, samples of the new variant are being tested in an effort to detect whether its altered genetic makeup has given the virus new powers to shred or sicken. The study authors said its rapidly increasing share of the California cases is also an ominous sign. Although the variant has barely, was barely detectable in early October, it accounted for 24% of roughly 4,500 viral samples gathered throughout Southern California in the last weeks of 2020, and 18% of statewide samples. Less than a month later, its share of the new infections had climbed. In the first three weeks of January 2021, the variant accounted for 44% of coronavirus samples collected in Southern California and 35% of samples from throughout the state. What's more, the variant has begun to travel widely. It has been detected in 19 states and the District of Columbia. It has also made its way to Australia, Denmark, Israel, New Zealand, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. For many years, the life expectancy for the average American increased, and as a result, so did the reserve estimate for lifetime awards and workers' compensation claims. But maybe it's now time to rethink that assumption in the mathematical calculation of reserving. The reason is that the American life expectancy decreased by a full year in the first half of 2020, hitting its lowest point since 2006 as the COVID-19 pandemic burned through the country. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced the findings in a first-of-its-kind report based on provisional vital statistics data, joining the annual and decennial national life tables that the agency typically publishes. Life expectancy summarizes the mortality conditions in a given year, providing a baseline for health officials to track changes across populations and over time. According to the latest data, pandemic-related deaths have deepened life expectancy disparities along racial and ethnic lines that were already striking. The CDT, CDC put the latest life expectancy gap between black and white Americans at six years, the largest since 1998. In addition to reporting on the three-year fall in the expected lifespans of black Americans, the CDC observed a nearly two-year drop in the lives of Hispanic Americans, another group whom white Americans statistically tend to outlive. Officials at the CDC characterize this as a huge decline, and they say you have to go back to World War II, the 1940s, to find a decline like this. 
The study from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics backs up what other researchers have been finding. A similar study on the subject appeared last month in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcasts and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.